Ephesians chapter 6, please. I want to read an account to you, a true account of something that happened several years ago. And so if you'd bear with me as I read it. Inside every airplane are instruments that are critical to flying the aircraft. The instruments will give true readings of how the aircraft is flying, even if the pilot's mind tells him differently. On a clear, sunny day, a pilot may not need some of those instruments, but at night or in poor visibility, these instruments become vital to his survival. Many planes have crashed because the pilots become disoriented and fail to trust their instruments. While attending Texas A&M, the author of this article says, Jeff Patton and I became friends as members of the Corps of Cadets. He is now Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Patton and flew an F-15 fighter during the Desert Storm battles. On the first night of the war, his mission was to escort a large formation of fighters in bombing a uh, chemical weapons plant in northern Iraq. The date for Desert Storm was chosen because of the absence of the moonlight and the high clouds would help the attacking Allied fighters from being detected by the enemy's defenses. Flying in total darkness, the pilots became completely dependent upon their instruments. Shortly after crossing into Iraq, Colonel Patton's jet was locked on by one of the anti-aircraft missile radars. He violently maneuvered his aircraft to break the radar's lock on him. His maneuver successfully broke the lock, but it created a new problem. Those radical movements in the dark threw off the balance in his inner ear, which is what happens when a person gets a little dizzy, causing him to become disoriented. His mind was telling him his plane was in a climbing right turn. But when he checked his instruments, they indicated he was in a 60-degree dive towards the ground. He was sure he was in a climb instead of a dive. And his mind was screaming at him to lower the nose of his F-15 to halt the climb. While his mind commanded him to correct the plane in one direction, his instruments were directing him to correct the plane in the opposite direction. Because he was flying in total darkness, he had to decide quickly whether to trust his mind or his instruments. His life depended on making the correct choice. Even though it took everything within him to overcome what his mind was telling him, he decided to trust the instruments. He rolled his wings level, pulled his F-15 upward, which drew seven times the force of gravity, pulling the aircraft out of its dive. It only took a few moments to realize he had made the right decision. If he had lowered the nose of his jet like his mind had been telling him, he would have crashed. Trusting his instruments saved his life. Immediately, he looked at his altimeter, which told him his elevation of his aircraft. He had narrowly missed colliding into a mountain in Iraq by just 2,000 feet. Although he had made the correct decision by trusting his instruments, he realized if he had delayed three more seconds, his plane would have crashed into the mountains. God has given us the instrument of his word to direct us, to keep us safe in our conflicts and battles. We need to follow his directives no matter how we feel or we will crash. Some of those principles, some of those directives are given in Ephesians chapter 6 that we ought to follow no matter how we feel. Let me make sure that you're with me as far as this whole study. Even though we're winding it up, let's make sure that you understand where we've been. Paul is writing from prison. He's writing the believers in the city of Ephesus. In the first couple chapters, he's writing all about the wealth that we believers enjoy, how God has blessed us with blessings beyond comprehension. Then in the middle of the book, he's talking about the spiritual walk, the way we need to live day by day. And at the end of the book, he's talking about the spiritual warfare that we are facing day by day. 
He describes it in Ephesians chapter 6, starting with verse 10, where he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. While praying always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto, with all perseverance and supplication for all saints, and for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. He's made it very clear we've got an enemy. The enemy is in the spirit world. Can't see them, but they're there. We know they're true because Jesus talked about them. This enemy, he says, we can resist with certain equipment, the armor of God. The spiritual aspects, whether it be the shield of faith or the helmet of salvation, this fits what Paul wrote to Corinthians where he said, though we walk in the flesh, we don't war after the flesh like we do here on earth. When we're in a spiritual battle, the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. They're not metal. They're not steel. They're not, they're not things that are produced or sold in stores. They're mighty through God. They are powerful. And no matter what age we've been in, he's talking about spiritual shields and swords and helmets that we need to wear or we're going to be defeated. Now at the end of this section, he talks about what energizes us. Praying always. Praying always. Profound passage. Profound text. Because what this, toward, this chapter is teaching us is God wants... It's God's will that you win over temptation in your life. Whether it be your anger, your gossip, your speech, whether it be your desires, your envy, your jealousies, whether it be a laziness, whether it be an addiction in your life, an attitude to somebody, God wants you to overcome. In fact, he says you can beat it. You can overcome in order that you may be able to stand. It's giving the hope that we can stand against the devil. The passage is telling us we can with stand. How is it possible? How can you have that victory? Well, you need to first of all, as we talked about, be strengthened in the Lord in the power of His might. You need to put on the whole armor of God. But then as we wrap up today, you need to be praying always. Now in this last paragraph, this last section, there are four alls. The four alls help us to really understand what he's getting at, what he's encouraging us to do. If we just take them and use them to help answer some very basic questions, who's supposed to be praying? Who, according to this text, is to be praying? I, I can take you to other passages that make it clear that the ones who definitely need to be praying, involved with prayer times, are the church leaders. We who are the church leaders, primarily the pastors, we are to be the epitome and the example of Christians praying. How do I know that? Well, in the book of Acts, when they were selecting officers, like we just talked about minutes ago, praying for those who would help. The reason that we have these helpers is what was described in the book of Acts, that we, who are the ministers of the word, can 
themselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the Word and not get sidetracked with important things, vital things, but yet they could distract us if we are focused on the facility, if we're focused on taking care of just the widows, if we're focused on some of those distractions of administration. He says, no, 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 we're to be focused. Preachers are to be focused on praying and the ministry of the Word primarily. We're to be the epitome in the church, the example in the church. He writes to Timothy. And writing to the pastor, he says, I'm telling you, I exhort first of all prayer and supplications, giving of thanks. Timothy, you've got to lead the church in this. You've got to be an example to the church. He writes in James, is any sick? Call for the pastors. They're to be the ones to come and to really be involved in praying. No, no doubt. I know that that's my burden. I know that's my responsibility. But if we dig into the text, I'm not the only one supposed to be praying. He says in this passage as he's talking to the believers, he's writing in the beginning of the book to the saints, those who are born again, those who know that they're on their way to heaven. That's a saint. A saint is somebody who has come to Christ and asked him to be their personal savior. A saint isn't equated to who's a church member or who goes to what denominational church. A saint is someone who has come in faith to Jesus Christ and on a personal basis has asked him to forgive them of their sins and give them the gift of eternal life. He's writing to the believers, to those who are saints. They've been forgiven by Christ. And he says, I want you, all of you, to put on the whole armor of God. And I want you to be praying always. But to make it more pointed, in the verses just preceding Ephesians 6, he has talked to the husbands, he has talked to the wives in chapter 5. He has talked as well to the kids. He's talked to the parents. He has talked to the employers. He's talked to the employees. And then he comes to chapter 6, verse 10. He says, my brethren, all of you. And then he says, I want you to put on the armor. I want you to be praying. You all need to do this. There isn't a single one of us who is born again that gets a, gets a card of exemption from praying. No matter what your age, no matter what your position, no matter what your gender, he says, you are to be praying always. Yes, I understand that I am obligated by the Word of God to be involved in that, but so are you. I understand that I probably more than you because of duties, responsibilities, but you are to be involved in it. Every single one of us, every one of us who is saved is to be praying. The text goes on and says, why should we be praying? It gives us an obvious answer, and I could take you to other passages. Other passages, God commands us to pray, seek, knock. We understand that. We know that. We know that the Scriptures teach, pray without ceasing. We know Jesus gives us the example. Nineteen times in the Gospels, we have accounts where he got aside and he prayed. Sometimes he prayed at night. Sometimes he prayed in the daytime. Sometimes he rose up early. Sometimes he prayed before meals. Sometimes he prayed before trials. Sometimes he prayed for himself. Sometimes he prayed for, his other, for others. But he prayed in such a fashion that his disciples came to him one day and said, teach us to pray. They begged him. Because of his example, he drew them to prayer. Did your kids ever do that to you? Do other believers approach you and say, hey, I want you to teach us to pray, to teach me to pray. Would you pray with me? I, because you are such an example of prayer and, and they know you go to prayer. They know that prayer is a vital part of your life, that they're drawn to it by your influence. Well, we have in this text... We have another reason why we should be praying. You're in a fight with the devil. 
You're in a fight with the devil. You need prayer or you're not going to win. It's not one of the tools listed as far as in the believer's armor, but it's added at the end. He says that you need to be praying as well. He doesn't define it as just one item in this believer's armor, but he wraps up and he says, while you're doing all that, you got to be in prayer. Satan doesn't want you to be in prayer. Satan will do whatever he can to keep you from prayer. Why is that? Well, maybe I can illustrate this way. So the mugger comes along and he's going to pick on somebody that looks defenseless. What if that person all of a sudden pulls out the weapon? That person is no longer defenseless. That mugger is going to think twice because that person is armed. Do you realize Satan wants to keep you unarmed? Satan doesn't want you to arm yourself to resist him with prayer. He would fear that. He wouldn't want you to do it, so he works hard to keep you from praying. There's something else about this text that strikes me that I think is often misunderstood. There are people who are walking around that say to resist Satan, what we're supposed to do is have conversations with Satan. It never said that. There isn't anything in this passage saying you can go out and you can commune and con- converse with Satan and you, with your conversation you can scare him. You don't intimidate Satan at all. I don't intimidate him. Even the great of angels, Michael the archangel, he didn't intimidate when they were battling over the body of Moses. He had to use the name of the Lord. It was prayer that intimidated Satan. Jesus used the word of God in prayer to be able to accomplish defeating Satan. We're not told to go and converse with him. We're told to talk with God. Spend time in communing with the Father. You're in a battle. You need to be praying, and God assumes that's what you're doing. You see, in the text, the way it reads, in starting with verse 18, it says, while you are praying always. It doesn't command you. It assumes you are praying. To me, that is stronger than a command. It is stronger than God saying, hey, so-and-so, I want you to be praying. It is God saying, I'm assuming you're, you're praying. Is he correct? Is he wrong? He assumes that you are involved in praying. But what about the typical church? What about the typical church? What do we know about churches in America? We know this, that the least attended times for people to get together is whenever we announce a prayer meeting. We are a typical church. That is true of this body. The lowest attended ministries are when we call for prayer meetings. We know that as well, that in churches like ours, there's many organizers. That's great, that's wonderful, but there's few agonizers. We even would take surveys and say, what about the preachers who are to be the epitome, the example of praying? Hey, Recent research says that the average pastor in America prays X amount of minutes. You want to guess what it is? Hmm. Seven minutes. That's the low end. Then there's another one that says, well, they spend 13 minutes. I don't think that's much better, is it? The one at the high end says this. It says a number of the pastors spend 37 minutes. You know what that equates to? That equates to nine and a half days in a year that the preachers are spending in prayer. Maybe that explains why we struggle. Maybe that explains why the world is getting the one up on the church and beating us down. If the leadership isn't engaging in prayer, then what about the body? What do we expect? What do we expect from you if I'm not praying, if the pastoral staff isn't praying? Typical church, 
Here's what, we, here's what I hear. I don't come to prayer meetings when you call them because the Bible never commands us to come and pray with others. I've heard that from several folk. It sounds very spiritual. It sounds very lofty that I don't have a verse that commands me that I need to be praying together with others. However, you have multiple verses in the book of Acts that talk about believers gathering, being in one accord, praying together, getting together, having prayer times, meeting together, and spending that encouraging, teaching one another how to pray. So are we going to remain the typical church? Or are we going to start a new course to say, we in leadership, we as a body, we are going to start focusing on prayer. Not just focusing on it. We're going to be practicing it the way the Scriptures encourages us to. So when we stop and say, hey, why should we get together and pray? Well, there's lots of good reasons. I guess it's one of the reasons is praying the right way is more caught than it is taught. It's getting together. And so I sit there and think, so what happens when we have prayer times? And somebody who's young in the faith comes, joins us for one of those monthly prayer meetings. Are there others that will rally to them to encourage them, to teach them, to help them to pray? To just voice concern that I'll pray with you. There's a lot we can do in improving in this area. But let me take you to another question. When should we be praying? When should we be praying? Well, this passage makes it very clear, along with other passages that say, pray without ceasing. Men ought always to praise, pray the words of Jesus. This one says, while praying always. I don't, I don't think we need to, con- to expand upon that. I, I think it's so clear that the passage is saying we're supposed to be praying. Now, it doesn't mean that we're supposed to have these perpetual long prayers that go on for hours and hours that are memorized or whatever. I don't think that's the thought. That you, the longer you pray, if you pray real long prayers, man, you're really spiritual. I don't think that's the concept here. In fact, length of prayers doesn't mean we're closer to God. A length of a memorized prayer, that's what he was critical of, of the hypocrites. They had this long, drawn out, pious prayers that he says they're going to be hurt, they're going to be getting their reward for their much hearing. We're supposed to be from the heart. Genuine conversation with God, with reverence, with, with coming to Him, relying upon Him, talking with Him, and praying always strikes me that this text that it means that we're to be so engaged in prayer in this sense that it becomes a regular part of our life. Like we eat, we sleep. We also, during the course of a day, we take time to pray. We can do it at any place, at any time. It can, we can just engage in prayer. That no matter what the situation, our recourse, our response, our reaction is going to be praying. I, I think what the passage is saying that we are, we are so interested in praying, we are so committed to praying, it doesn't have to be long and drawn out, but rather we respond with prayer. If it's a good situation, if it's a bad situation, if we're by ourselves when we're with others, when we're driving down the road and we're just we're by ourselves, what a great time to worship and pray, pray to God. What a wonderful time 
to just be focused when we're, when we're with somebody and we can just say, hey, why don't we pray about that when they say, I've got this issue. Well, let's pray about it. That's our, our tendency, our response is, let's pray. Let's pray. And not lengthy, but we're focused. It, it becomes part of our lives that we pray that way. We need to pray. We need to pray because we're in a spiritual battle. So when do you pray? When you're in a battle. As long as the battle continues, you need to be given to prayer and pray and pray. There are things that we're involved in, all of us. Good things, nothing evil. Things that we do in our free time that we might spend time doing, whether it be yard work or watching the movies or being video games or swimming or some the texting and the whatever. Some are sports and some are engaged with just listening to music. All things good, nothing bad. But if I asked you this question, would you be willing to give up some of that time that you take just to focus and entertain yourself and shift this week and spend prayer time and give up some of that, would you do it? Would you willingly give up some of that time? We had a speaker at the camp this week and he was talking to the teens. And he was giving illustrations how certain of these things can dominate the lives. He picked on video games. And he was saying that at campuses now, those who are enrolling into colleges, he asked the teens, how many hours a week do you think the average uh, guy at campus, college student, spends playing video games during the week? And there was guesses all over the room. And then he concluded, he says, the average American college student spends 20, man, spends 24 hours a week playing video games while enrolled in college. That's amazing to me. That's absolutely amazing. We can talk about all of the benefits. What if the average college student, would, Christian college student, would stop and say, well, I'm just going to take one of, those, one of those hours and I'm going to give it to praying. What a difference it may make. What if the average parent would say, I'm going to take out of my entertainment, I'm going to take an hour a week and I'm going to pray for my kids. I'm going to pray for my marriage. What if the average grandparent would say, I'm going to take from some of the time that I spend. For me, this, is, this has been challenging my heart for the last months. And so when I ride in a car, I don't ride quietly. I've always got to have something going. In my study, I usually have music or something playing. I, that's just me. I have ambient noise. And so when I've been by myself more and more the last weeks, I've been trying to practice this because I'm a news junkie. I love to listen to all of the terrible politics going on in America. And getting myself all flustered, all upset, I start driving faster, I blow through stop signs as if that's going to make a difference in American politics. And so my heart's been convicted, why do I allow those things that frustrate me to just flood into my life? Why don't I take those times when I'm calling, going somewhere, if I'm by myself, why don't I take those times to pray for you? And to just, as you come to mind, pray for you. It has really helped to just turn off the radio and to pray for others. I don't know if my spirit will will be so weak that I'll go back to the radio or continue. I hope that I continue to keep that off more than what I've done in the past. Just to say, God, I need to spend more time in praying because we're in a battle. Who should do it? All of us. 
When should we do it? It should be such a part of our life that we want to pray and we respond with prayer and we even give special times for prayer. Should we do, should we do another one? Should we ask another question? How do we pray? The text tells us how. The text unfolds very simply as he starts describing while praying with all prayer. The first word that he uses for prayer has the idea of any type, a generic type of prayer. Praise, thanksgiving, it's whatever. And then he starts getting specific. Supplication has the idea of begging. You have a need and now you're begging. You're, you're really engaged in it. That's supplication. That's the word. It's to plead, to, to call with earnestness. Then he goes on, he adds another word to it. While watching. The while watching is literally to stay awake, to stay alert. Now, does that mean that we need to be praying all night long and give up our sleep? That's not necessarily the text. Is that a bad thing to do once in a, in a great while? No, it's not a bad thing. But that's not what the text is calling for. The text while watching, I think what he's after is the idea of being observant. Being observant. Being concerned about others. That you see a need. That you listen to their needs. That when they ask for prayer, you're observant. You're taking it in. And you're, you're watching for opportunities to be praying, to lift this person up or to bring this need before the Lord. I think what he's talking about by while watching is when you pray to be focused. Nobody else in this room probably struggles the way I do. When I pray, I put my brain, if, and, and, and for me, driving and praying is good. Because when I close my eyes, uh, maybe, maybe I'm not the only one in this room. Okay. Okay, when I close my eyes, not when I'm driving, but when I close my eyes for prayer, I go into sleep. My body says, you know, go to sleep. That's why your eyes are shut. So for me, there's that time to say, okay, to, to better my prayer life, it's good to do when I'm walking through the building. It's good to do when I'm driving, okay? Because it's, I can focus and pray but I'm not being, I'm not being drifting. I, just, see if, see if I'm, I'm the weird one. Any of, anybody else in this room, when you read the Bible sometimes, when you pray, your mind drifts. And then at, when you're at the last verse of the chapter, your mind comes back. <laughs> what did I read? I don't know. <laughs> but I got to get something out of this last five words. Am I the only one? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Be focused when we're praying. I, I think while watching means no canned prayers. That just, you know, just, your mind just disengages and you say words that mean nothing. But it means we're not complacent about prayer. We're, we're alert to the opportunities. We want to be praying. We're engaged in it. And when we pray, we're, it might only be five minutes. It might be only when you're walking from, you know, from the, uh, doing something in the yard and back to the house that you pray for somebody. But you're praying with earnestness for those individuals. In fact, the scripture says when we pray, we got to pray with understanding, with our brains intact. Here's a text of scripture that is often twisted. It's in the middle of that passage talking about people speaking in tongues and other gifts. 
And he says, if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, my understanding is unfruitful. Some grab this verse and say, oh, that's saying we should be praying in tongues. Actually, it's not. It's a negative to why pray in tongues if you don't understand what you're praying. If you're just doing some garbled speech or foreign speech and you have no clue, he says, my understanding is unfruitful. And he adds this, what is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, but I will pray with understanding also. This is what I want to do. When I'm praying, I want to be engaged. I want to be real in my prayer. I want to know what I'm praying about. Then he adds, with all perseverance in this text. The perseverance means to be glued to something or someone. In other words, God, I am so glued to you, I need you. I want you. I crave you. Then he says, in the Spirit. Wow, that one's loaded. Here's a whole nother sermon all by itself. What does he mean by praying in the Spirit? Well, it obviously means that you're not grieving the Spirit. Mentioned in Ephesians 4.30. It means that you have the right attitude. You're not angry. You're not upset. You're not grieving the Spirit with words or with attitudes that are filled with angst. Or, or, or against others. So praying in the Spirit means I've got to be right with God. I'm fessed up to God, as you would say in this region. It also means submission to God. Submission, being filled with the Spirit, yielded to the Spirit. God, I am praying for this, but your will be done. Praying in the Spirit means this. It means I'm relying on God. Romans chapter 8 talks about there are times we don't know what to pray for. Have you ever been in that spot? I don't know what to pray for. Do we pray for this person's healing or do we pray for their home going? Do we pray for, you know, this job or this job? I I don't know which one. God, I just don't know. Romans 8 talks about that the groaning of the Spirit helps to make intercession. So as we're praying, we're praying, Spirit of God, you help bring this before God the way that is best. Then we need to be wanting what the Spirit wants, where we are totally yielded. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a what? A living sacrifice. Yielded to God. And again, the example of Christ. Thy will be done. So do you pray in the Spirit with perseverance. The idea of this passage is not you need to be bugging God and bugging God to twist his arm to give you something that, that you want. And then finally he'll say, oh, okay, you can have it. That's not the idea of perseverance. That's not the idea of persistence. The idea is that we're going to him and we're showing God, I really, really want your blessing. I'm really, really relying upon you, not myself, in how to raise the kids. God, I need your help. God, I need your help in how to preach. I need your help in how to, how to do the camp thing. I need your help, God, in being a counselor. I need your help in how to get good grades at school. Where it's, a, it's an expression of dependence, an utterance of dependence upon the Lord by praying, by saying, God, I need you. God, I'm coming to you and I'm asking you, help me to be able to get my driver's license because in and of myself, I, I won't pass. God, I need you. And yet so many of us, we are so self-reliant. We don't pray because we think we got the answers. Prayer is an expression to God that says, God, I want your will on earth. Thy will be done in my life, in my home, in our church. For what do we pray? Oh man, now he gets really specific. 
He says in this text, we're to be praying for all the saints. Does that mean I just kind of pull out and just go, God bless all the missionaries in the world. God bless all the people of the world. Is that the generic idea here? Do you think that's what he means? The little three-year-old prayer that a three-year-old says, bless all the mommies and daddies in the world. Shouldn't we have a more mature concept of prayer as we get more mature? I'm not sure that's what he means. I'm glad that three-year-olds pray that that way, but I would think older folk, older maturing Christians understand the concept here is this idea that we don't just pray for ourselves. That we're praying for others. That we're interested in God blessing others. That we're engaged with saying, hey, I will pray intercessory prayers for other people. It is interesting. It is interesting that there's a pattern in Christian churches like ours. People want us to pray when they have needs. Pray for me. Pray for me. Pray. When we did the prayer time just a few weeks ago and I said we need a prayer night for all the health needs of individuals because we were just, we were inundated with a number of critical health issues. You know, and we need to pray. And there's, there's individuals who when they have a prayer request, they want to make sure that I say it and I don't forget it from the pulpit and give it. But when we pray for others, they may not show up. And he says, hey, listen, it's not just your family and your prayer things you should be concerned about, but what about the needs of other people? That you would come and you would engage in praying for them. Praying for others is his point. His idea is that we aren't supposed to selectively say, I'm going to pray for her because I like her. I'm not going to pray for Jim. You just happen to be right here. I'm not praying for him because he wears some really weird outfits at times. That is true. That is true. Okay. 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 On Fridays at school, the, real, the Hawaiian outfits, yes. Okay. But I'm not going to pray for him. We're not supposed to be biased against people. We're not supposed to be saying, I don't like him, I'm not going to pray for him, I'm going to pray against him. That's supposed to be out of our lives as maturing Christians. Engaged in the battle, we dare not let those bullets of envy and jealousy to keep us from praying for others. What we're supposed to be doing is we're supposed to take time to pray. Then he goes on and he says, and for me. We already read the text. This is the Apostle Paul. Think what this says. The great Apostle Paul is asking for prayer. In other words, we're to be praying for other people, including men. Now, in that culture, the men usually had it all together, quote-unquote. That's what everybody thought. Not only a man, but Paul by this time is an older man. He says, I still need prayer. I'm a man, I'm I'm a leader, but I need prayer. I want you to pray, and I'm an older saint. By the time he's writing this, probably saved 25, 30 years. I need you to pray for me. In other words, what he's telling us, mature saints need prayers. He's telling us that ministers need your prayers. He's telling us that spiritual giants need prayer. He's telling us that missionaries need prayer. This thing is so loaded. 
And Paul tells us why he wants prayer. He says, you got to pray for me. you got to pray for me. And then those last verses that he goes on, he says, for me. And he tells us that, I, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the gospel, the mystery. I'm an ambassador in bonds. What he's saying is that he still feels an ongoing responsibility to proclaim the gospel. But he's been doing it for years. He, he's started dozens of churches. He's experienced. He's successful. But I need you to pray for me. I need your help to pray for me that I still, I still would do this. I have a burden to give out the gospel. I pray. I pray you still have a burden. That after you've been saved 25 years, you want to see people saved. You want to share the gospel. If not, you need to be praying about something else. Like revival. But he prays and he says, he says, pray for me because I find it difficult after 25 years of sharing the gospel, after doing it in multiple cities, it's hard for me. I'm with Paul. I can relate to Paul. Sharing the gospel doesn't get easier. Giving out tracts doesn't get less intimidating. Giving out a gospel witness, it doesn't just flow. It's challenging. Why? Why is it so hard when we're saved after weeks and months and years? Why is it still hard for us to give out the gospel? Why do we hesitate to give out a witness? What's the context? We're in a spiritual battle. There's an, uh, there's an enemy that doesn't want you to speak He's going to throw something in front of you, fear. He's going to throw guilt in front of you. He's going to throw inadequacy in front of you. He's going to throw questions in front of you to get you to back down. And Paul says, I don't want to back down. I, I, I need you to pray for me. I find it difficult, but I'm still burdened, and I want to do this outreach. In other words, it, outreach on the mission field or anywhere requires group effort. So we send the missionary out and say, go for it. And then we forget about him for the next four years. That violates every concept, everything in this passage. That, that's just so unbiblical. The enemy wants us to forget our missionaries. The enemy doesn't want us to be praying for them. The last thing he wants you to do is get on your knees and beg for God to help out the Tuttles or the Rudolphs. God, the enemy doesn't want you to do that. He just doesn't. So I ask you these questions and ask you to seriously answer them from your heart. Have you been praying this month? Is prayer been a regular response in your life? Honestly, before God, don't lie. Don't pretend you can be the part, you can look the part, you can sing the songs, but now we're talking about your prayer life before you and God. You don't have to confess to us, but if you haven't been engaged in praying, he that praying, he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is, it needs to be confessed. You need to confess the sin of prayerlessness. <sighs> Will you start? Will you start? Maybe start again. That's where a lot of us are. Will you start and say, God, I'm going to get back to this. I'm going to pray. 
I'm going to pray and we're going to pray together in our family. We're going to take moments, we're going to pray together because it's so important that my kids learn to pray and the way they're going to learn to pray is by my lack of it or my demonstrating it. What are you teaching your kids? Would you, would you be willing for the rest of this year when we call for prayer meetings, which are the first Wednesday of the month, a special night, would you come? Would you give an hour of group prayer that you would say, God, my week isn't that, that stuff I have isn't that important that I can't get together and pray for the needs of other believers. That I can't pray for it like we did to Ukraine one night. And we're gonna, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to join in a prayer time. Not for show, but for my own growth and to follow the scriptures. More importantly, would you adopt a missionary this year? They need prayer. They need people who would uphold them in regular prayer. Would you be willing to say, I'm going to stop being on the sidelines and pray, and this, this year I'm going to pray for our missionaries. Now, I, I know some say, well, I, I'm not going to sign up for one missionary because I'm just going to communicate and pray with them all. Great! I hope that's true sounds very lofty, but I hope it's true. For some of us, that doesn't work. We're not that disciplined to communicate with all the missionaries. We have 16 different missionaries. If you're engaged with writing them every month, God bless you. But for some of us, we have to be more realistic to say, I'm not that spiritual, that disciplined. I'm going to pick one. And I'm going to communicate with them, and I'm going to pray with them because it's easier for me to be focused on that one. We talk about this every year. And from our missionaries, every single one of them, the other night sitting with Steve and Natalie and asking them, what was the biggest help that we gave? And it wasn't that we were their largest contributor, which the funds are good. They heard from people in this church on personal email that they were praying for him. That was the greatest encouragement they said over the years. Why don't you do it? It's a biblical concept to praying for the missionaries. They need it. Sign up. And right now, we're probably doing a spiritual battle right now in this room. The battle is being waged by the enemy giving excuses in your ear, giving you some type of something else to say, you don't need to, it's not da-da. And yet, in this text, praying, praying, praying together, praying for missions. Who's going to win the battle this morning? The battle that he doesn't want you to pray and God is saying by his instruments, God is saying, here's what you need to do. You don't want to crash. Stop going by your feelings and go by my scriptures. Pray. Pray for others. Sign up to pray. 
Father, I ask that you would help us to do more than just being hearers of the word. Help us, oh Father, to be doers of the word. Help us as a group to stop putting it on other people's shoulders. Help us as individuals to practice this passage and get victory in our lives and in the lives of some of our missionaries who are in desperate need right now for prayer support. Help us, O oh Father, to be peoples that would love to talk to you throughout the day, any day, and not just come and wait until Sundays. Help our teens to be teens of prayer. Help our singles to be individuals who are given to prayer. Help our moms and dads, married couples, to be individuals that would pray. Help our seniors to be exemplary examples of prayer. Help our staff. Help us to be examples of prayer. Father, let this be months in our church. Let this be a new turn in our church to becoming a church that is really focused on praying and walking with you daily. Let that be an earmark. I pray in the name of Jesus.